Well, the year was uh, 1843. It was in New England. The guy's name was William Miller. He was a preacher, and he had an ardent belief in the second coming. In fact, so ardent that he began to do extra kind of study and analysis. And he had a group of people, rather large group of people following, called the Millerites. And on March the 21st of 1843, he predicted that Jesus Christ would return the second time. It had been based, the delusion had been based in part upon a comet that had gone by, but he'd done a bunch of mathematical calculations, and he collected all the data, and he analyzed it, and he says, this is the day. And so he got all of his congregation people ready. I don't know how many there were, but it was like I said, a large contingency that started to develop over the course of time. And, and it was like, okay, this is what we need to do. According to Scripture and the whole idea of the rapture and not wanting to be left behind kind of idea, right? This is what we need to do. We need to get our ascension robes on. And then we need to get up as high as we possibly can because that would be great to be able to be the first ones taken. And so they went up into the mountain. Some of them climbed trees. Midnight. There they sat, waiting and waiting and waiting. All day they waited and Jesus did not come. Well, they went to a belated breakfast on the 22nd of March. Very discouraged, and uh, William Miller didn't know what to think, so he went back and he re-looked at his figures and he, he recalculated and he says, Oh, I can't believe this! I was off by a whole year! 365 days! And so, believe it or not, the next year rolls around, and the Millerites, ascension robes, ascended the mountains, climbed the trees, waiting on Jesus to come back, and, well... You know, you're still here, right? He didn't come back. He went back and recalculated and says, I'm sorry, I really, I was off. And there was, you know, some type of other thing going on. And they did it the third year. And Jesus did not return. And many of those people walked away not only from their teacher, but they walked away from the Lord. There's been numerous people throughout time who've tried to predict when Jesus Christ would come back. And and really, it's not ill that you do that. We're encouraging us to have a heart of expectation as we look at the end times and current events and what Jesus would say to us from his word. So the spirit of expectancy is important, but the scripture is very clear that no man knows when Jesus is coming back again, except the Father. Now, we may smile at that kind of thing, silly, but you know what? It happened in our time. How many of you know who Harold Camping is? All right, Family Radio, out of right here in California, 150 stations across the United States. And Harold Camping predicted in 2011 that Jesus Christ was going to return. And so it was broadcast, it was publicized, and it wasn't only March 21st, it was on May 21st, and Jesus Christ was going to come back on May 21 of 2011. And then there was going to be this establishment of, of all kinds of, of uh, radical uh, uh, judgment upon the earth and different kinds of things going. And people got caught up into it, and it also came across as a little wacko to a lot of people, right? Maybe you remember that when he predicted it. 
But uh, everybody, a lot of people got engaged in it. And then uh, culminating, it was supposed to be on October 21st of 2011 with the final destruction of the whole world. And this was taught. This was publicized. This was encouraged. And people came around that prediction. October 21, as well as May 21, 2011, came and went. Camping largely avoided press interviews after the 21st. Uh, part of that is maybe because he had a stroke in June of 2011. But he uh, went back and he relooked through things and he too thought, oh, I've messed up. I have not calculated correctly. But to his credit, and he died in 2013, in 2012, he admitted that he was terribly wrong to ever even think about trying to predict when the Lord Jesus Christ would come back. Because Scripture forbids us to do so. But I give you those two examples. Because I think something's happened in our culture that is of concern. Because there's people like William Miller and the Millerites, Harold Camping and his teachings, and you could strew a whole list of other people. There's the perception that talking about the end times and the second coming of Jesus Christ is really a wacko idea. And it's foolishness to even think about the end times or to talk about it or to study it or to discover what God says to us in our own life concerning his word, concerning all that he's laid out and other uh, biblical writers have laid out. And so we just avoid the whole subject. But we shouldn't do that. You see, there's a little bit of a dearth of teaching on the end times today for various reasons, but one of the four Running reasons, I believe, is because it's seen as eccentric and weird and wacko and out of bounds to even think about something like that. And so we swing the pendulum back the other way and say, well, I'm not going to talk about that. It's a little far-fetched, don't you think? I mean, we sort of believe it right. It's in Scripture. But when's the last time you sat down at a dinner table uh, with some friends or maybe a lunch conversation at work and said, hey, man, you know, what do you think about all this end time? I mean, all these current events. Do you think that Jesus is maybe getting ready to come back? All the heads would pop. Are you one of those wacko people? It's not a natural part of our conversation, but I think that it should be. In part, that's why we're talking on it on these weeks this month, because it should be a common conversation, at least at some angle, not because we know when he's coming, exactly how it's all going to play its way out, but because, as we focused on last week, when Jesus ascended to the heavens after his resurrection, the angels declared he would come back in the same manner you've seen him go. And Jesus himself would talk about his second coming, his coming to establish the culmination of his kingdom. And the apostles and the followers of the early testament, they anticipated Jesus' return, even so much that they sometimes didn't plan ahead like they should. Jesus' second coming needs to be a natural part of our conversation and our diet, our study, our understanding. But prophecy has started to to have a little bit of a misnomer because of the wacko side. And then I believe there's some other reasons, including that of I think there's sometimes just a lack of training and teaching on it. And sometimes there's just a lack of, of understanding 
Because it's hard work to try to put it together as to, you know, not necessarily all the timelines and how it plays out, but the heart and the disposition of what it means to consider that the Lord would return. And then some people, they just don't, and these even preachers, don't believe in the power of God's word to be prophetic and to be true and to be transformational. So there's not only ignorance, there's stupidity. I don't want us to be in that camp. I don't want us to be in that camp. And so that's why we're in this series, Left Behind, Jesus Teaches on the End Times and Current Events and Reflecting in particular, on Matthew 24 and 25, which is called the Olivet Discourse. It's one of the longest teachings that Jesus has with his disciples. And he begins to unpack for them the answer to their question that they put out, which was, Lord, when will all this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want to uh, have us... um, go back to the summary statement I used last week. Why do we do this in general? It's because of this. Your view of the end times will transform how you live in the present time. Your belief will either strengthen or dismiss the promise of hope, the purpose of mission, and the presence of Christ for everyday life. Last week, I had a very simple chart that I started with. And that chart was two lines. The scriptures teach that there is the present age and that there is an age to come. So whether or not you agree with anything that we start to articulate maybe in a little bit more detail in these coming weeks, I would hope that this is in your worldview, that there is a present age that is going to come to a close, and then there is going to be an age to come. And those um, references are throughout scripture. We gave a little bit more definition then as we filled in a chart, I guess I could say, and that is that the age to come sort of entered into the present age when Jesus Christ came the first time. So the first coming of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension are represented by that cross on that chart. But this was after a long period of time of earthly history, right? We have the creation on the left side of that chart. And then we look forward to a culmination. Scripture teaches that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And one of these days we're going to get into that and unpack that a little bit. But it's really a restoration of what God intended in the beginning of time with the Garden of Eden and the beauty of everything before the fall, before sin entered into the world. But sin entered into the world all the way back with Adam and Eve, uh, the first man and woman that was ever walking on this planet Earth. And from there, God has been working out a redemptive plan to restore people into right relationship with him, but also to restore the beauty and the harmony of all creation. And so we are moving on a trajectory towards eternity with a new earth and a new heaven. And like I said, we'll try to unpack that in one of the weeks to come. But there is this time in between that sort of I'm referencing as the overlap ages between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's referenced there with that little orange box. And there's a question mark because we are living in this period, what's known as the last days. Any time from the life of Jesus onward in scriptures referred to as the last days. It's a question mark time. And um, it can also be referenced as the church age. All right. 
God calling out the people who are followers of him, the church. But there's an awful lot we don't know inside that orange box. And we're going to look at a a few more particulars as we try to, to figure this out. But I want to identify for you four ways or four interpretation camps of prophetic events. So when you come to Scripture and it has these prophetic things uh, that are articulated there, you will find that they're articulated uh, or they're interpreted in four different kinds of camps with different people, some maybe pick and choose. The first interpretation camp is past fulfillment, that something spoken in Scripture of a prophetic nature has already occurred in history past since Jesus was here. Or if it was Old Testament stuff since you know, for in the coming of Jesus. Well, we know this to be true, that some Old Testament scriptures, there's tons of them. We could jump into many of them that predicted the coming of a Messiah were fulfilled, literally fulfilled to the dotting the I and crossing the T in the life and person of Jesus Christ when he came. So prophecy is to be fulfilled. The Old Testament prophets articulated the coming of Messiah, it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But not only were there prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, there were prophecies about what would happen with the coming of the Messiah, and some of those have not yet been fulfilled. All right? But some people believe where we stand at today in 2014, that the biblical prophecies articulated, not only the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, have already been fulfilled by the history, in particular, the history that occurred within the first century after Jesus Christ walked on this earth. There's a big word for it called preterist, which basically is a uh, a Latin word that means past. All right, these things have passed. They've happened. All right, the second camp are the futurist. There is future fulfillment. That these things spoken are all future. They're yet to happen. They have not happened with any historical uh, current events, past in your history books. They're yet to happen. So all point to a future time. Then there's sort of a third camp called the two-part fulfillment. And it's a little bit of a combination. Some of these have been accomplished, whether in Christ or in other kinds of dimensions. And some are yet to be fulfilled. So some past and some Future, And sometimes if you take something like our passage in Matthew 24 and 25, the people in the third camp would say, okay, this part, these verses already happened here. These verses now are going to happen in the future. But oh, these verses here, they already happened in the past. All right. So there's sort of stages that are happening. Then there's the fourth camp of interpretation, and I refer to it as double fulfillment. Some people have given some other titles to it, but double fulfillment means it's relating to both the past and the future, almost simultaneous. In other words, we see that it's fulfilled this way at this time, but yet it will also be fulfilled in a future sense in a greater way down the road. You know, one of the analogies for this is now that I live around mountains, this is helpful. You know, if you see a mountain and you see a mountain peak and then there's a little bit of another peak beyond that, I, I guess they're mountains. I, it, uh, someone's got to give me the definition for the difference between the hills and the mountains around here. But to me, when you're from flat land cornfields, they're all mountains. And so, 
So if you're looking on a hill or a mountain, all right, and you're seeing something like, oh, look at that precipice up over there, and you would take off on this jaunt to climb, many times you climb to that precipice that's right immediately before you, thinking that you're almost to the other precipice, when lo and behold, guess what? There's a long, deep valley between, right? But when you're standing back in this perspective, you're thinking they're sort of contiguous. Well, that's what happens with prophecy a lot of times when it's articulated in the Old Testament. Even the authors themselves didn't fully understand this. It was definitely true of articulating the, the Messiah. They wouldn't understood that Scripture talks about a first coming and a second coming of the Messiah. But you're standing uh, prior to all this and you're seeing it and you say, oh, they're sort of contiguous in there. But then as you start to live out the generations, you realize that there's time gaps and it's not as uh, succinct put together in a chronological period as first thought. All right? So then the prophecy comes in. You're saying, okay, there's sort of two double fulfillment kind of thing. They're part now, but part future. So those are four camps. You need to know this. Those four camps are represented probably by everybody in this room at some level, especially the backgrounds you might come from. Any of those four camps, you can be a solid, evangelical, passionate, Christ-pursuing follower of our Lord and Savior, and you're good. We don't need to be picking fights as to what camp you're in concerning the interpretation of prophetic scriptures. Now, sometimes it's fun to wrestle with it a little bit, those kinds of things. I was listening to somebody this week. There was a seminary professor, and they would walk in. I think it was um, uh, probably better not mention names, or I'll, I'll probably get them messed up. But he would walk in, and he goes, it's a sad day to another professor. It's a sad day because Jesus can't come back today, according to your theology. It's a sad day. Sort of jiving a little bit, encouraging, you know, hey, you know, what's your view? How do you think things are going to play their way out? And I think for us as Christians, it's very important when it comes to prophecy and we look at it, that we need to understand that none of us have a corner on truth and understanding in this area. There is a lot of ignorance in this room. I'm hoping that we get enlightened a little bit more, but there's a lot of ignorance. Why? Because we live here before the precipices, and we really don't know what's in all the valleys that are before us in time. Do I believe Jesus Christ can come back at any time? You betcha I do. I believe that's clearly taught in Scripture, the imminent return of Jesus. Do I believe that it should mobilize us and transform our life? You betcha I do. But I don't think we should be nitpicking, getting caught up. Even someone like the William Miller or even Harold Camping, as frustrated as I was when I remember that came out, just pass on a lot of high-intensity judgment, okay? All right? People's hearts generally are well-intentioned when it comes to this. But we may come from different perspectives, different angles, as it relates to prophecy. When you interpret prophecy, I personally believe that it's important that we ought to interpret uh, the Bible literally as best we can, even when there's allegory, when there's figures of speech and images and prophetic literature, they are representing real events that are behind them. All right? So we are looking for not some spiritual ambiance of interpretation, but there's a literal um, fulfillment of biblical prophecy that we need to be pursuing. And when we pursue um, the understanding of biblical prophecy, it ought to lead us towards comfort and spiritual edification. It should not lead us towards fear and sensationalizing. In fact, I believe one of the biggest scars against us 
who uh, are more futurists, and, and maybe if uh, you're a believer, even in the rapture, all those kinds of things, we'll be talking about that and different opinions on all those kinds of different things. One of the biggest scars is that uh, our eschatology, and eschatology, by the way, is the big theological word for the study of the end times, esco is, is end. Uh, the eschatology that we get into studying has become sort of an escapist route. And so Christians have an escapist eschatology, which means it's going to get really, really bad down here. And God's going to come and just zap us out of here so we don't have to take on all the really bad. Friends, what do you think the Christians in Iraq this very morning would say about that? All right? Persecution and turmoil and trouble, it abounds and has historically, and we're going to be looking at one of those instances according to Scripture. We should never allow our eschatology to get us into this escapist mentality where this world doesn't matter. God is redeeming this world. It's a new heaven and a new earth. He's restoring all things. And so we should be adamantly busy. That whole second part of the statement up front about being the purpose of mission is we should be adamantly engaged in making the world a better place. Not that we are going to bring about the solution and solve everything. We need Jesus to come back. But we should never allow ourselves to fall into escapist eschatology. And I think that some of the detriment of what's happened in the last 200 years when there's become more of a study on some of the particulars of how prophecy plays its way out. We got all involved in understanding all the interests. So it's like, well, just forget. I'm just going to wait. I have been, you know, I, I used to kid. I used to say it at, at youth camps when I would speak. You know, it's a whole idea that oh, I'm going to get saved and then people get saved. Let Jesus come in their life. And then they sit around and just twiddle their thumbs and wait on the rapture for Jesus to come back. No. When you become a follower of Jesus, you then enter into his kingdom. And he is designed for his kingdom to be brought about on earth as it is in heaven. So pull up your bootstraps, get engaged, seek what God wants you to do with others, and seeing this world transformed for his glory. And one day, he will come back to make all things right. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. So don't fall prey to escapist eschatology. We should pursue a biblical interpretation that's literal, but our prophecy should lead us to comfort, spiritual edification, and spiritual advancement in action. All right? So those things are framed up there. And uh, just want to encourage us uh, along that line. Now, we are going to sort of pick up in a moment where we left off last week. But last week, we started with this Matthew passage, chapter 24, where it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away. When his disciples came up to him, it calls attention to its buildings do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And we saw how that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. Jesus then on the Mount of Olives, which was across the Kidron Valley, um, he sits down looking over on the Temple Mount. His disciples came to him privately, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. And they said, tell us, tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, remember what I said about double fulfillment? Um, this is part of our problem with this whole passage. They should have just asked one question. All right? 
Now, in their minds, they were sort of asking one question. Um, when is all this going to happen? You're coming. Now, remember, they didn't realize Jesus was going to ascend to the heavens. They didn't see the valley between the first and second coming. So the coming to them was, when are you going to establish this messianic reign and do away with the Roman control? When, when, when are we going to be the winners? So you're coming. He was there in presence, but they thought he was going to take on an essence of a historical messiahship, as they thought, which would be a political kind of leader. So what, when will this happen, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they asked, when are the stones going to be thrown down? When are you going to establish your kingly reign here in Jerusalem? And then what's sort of going to be the sign of the, of the end of the age with that? All right. And so that's exactly what started to, to play in their minds as they're wanting to figure this out. And Jesus answers them. And I think as we walk through Matthew 24 and he tries to answer them, that he's sort of addressing different parts maybe at uh, some different kinds of times. That's what happens when the mama leaves for the weekend. The kids roam wild. Everybody has permission to be my son's parent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to look at what we looked at last week just briefly um, as it relates to this double fulfillment. The double fulfillment, a near and far in Matthew 24, I think is clearly there. Spiritual deception is the first. Jesus answered. All right. Many people will be deceived. Many will come in my name. All right. There's going to be spiritual deception, he said. And that was a near event upon his ascension. But it's also an event that's far away. The global conflict. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. All right. But the end is, is uh, still not near. There will be nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. All right. There will be global conflict. It was a near event. Historically, it's true when you read um, about uh, the history following Jesus ascension in the first century. But then there's also that future part. Natural disasters. It says in verse seven, B and eight. Right. It says uh, there will be famines and earthquakes. And another reference can be pestilence. Diseases like Ebola and other things, right? There is a near and there is a far event to that as well. Christian persecution. You will be handed over to be persecuted. And you will be hated by all people because of me. Alright? Widespread apostasy then. Many will turn from the faith. The hearts of many will grow cold because of me. And then as we closed out last week, Matthew 24:14, worldwide evangelism is spoken of there. It says that um, when this gospel is preached into all the world, to all nations, then the end will come. Those six references are both near and far. It's an example of the double fulfillment, I believe, that Scripture refers to. But you cannot, I believe, fall into the futurist camp only and negate that those things did not happen immediately upon Jesus' presence. Uh, immediately upon Jesus' ascension to heaven. 
You know, I don't know if you how well you do watch current events. But the current events that we see, Jesus is telling them, see to that you are not alarmed. But there's a difference between alarm, being alarmed, and what I want to refer to as being alert. Um, how many of you hate it when that alarm goes off in the morning? And some of you have a really nasty-sounding alarm because if it wasn't that nasty-sounding, you'd never get out of bed, right? So it's like the alarm is, oh, my gosh, and, and then, oh, my God, I'm late. I need to do this. What's next? It's, that's different than, I think, to being alert, being a wise of what's on the scene, like being a defensive driver. You're alert to what's happening around you and observing what's seen. Well, when you look at current events today, as I said last week, you should not be alarmed. Jesus says don't be alarmed. But we should be alert to the times that we live in. And this whole area of persecution, can I just do a little cul-de-sac here, a sidebar, and encourage us as believers in Christ this morning that you would pray. Pray for Christians who are being persecuted. Do you realize that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this group, uh, but this group is called Boko Haram, the Boko Haram Jihadists. You're familiar with them? Maybe you remember a few months ago, they uh, kidnapped 200 girls from a school. Just disappeared. Where do they go? Well, the Boko Haram uh, jihadists are in Nigeria, and they recently torched over 180 churches in two different northeastern states. Now, do you think that all that Christian persecution you'll be handed over is all past? No. There's been a lot of that past, but there's a lot present, and there's going to be a lot more in the future. Last night, I received an email from a fellow Alliance pastor, and I tracked down the email and found out it was sort of a chain letter. And this chain letter, uh, maybe some of you had come across it. It's, it's like, well, is this really true or not? And the essence of it, uh, the particulars may not necessarily be true, but the essence of it definitely is true. It was a prayer call for people being persecuted in Iraq with the whole ISIS issue that's going on as they're taking over different towns and villages. And part of this this uh, reference was a prayer request from a couple missionaries seemingly that were in the area that were attacked by ISIS, and they were asking for a showering of prayer. It said that ISIS had taken over their town today. It said ISIS is systematically going house to house to all Christians and asking the children to announce Jesus. Again, not sure that this is true, but the essence of the persecution is. He said, so far, not one child has denounced Jesus. And so far, all have consequently been killed, but not the parents. And the UN has withdrawn and the missionaries are on their own. Yea, nay, to the exact accuracy of that, I think in theory to pull back and understand that there is persecution. In fact, when I was trying to check out the veracity of that, uh, what ended up being uh, understood as a chain email uh, last night, I end up having some, you know, you do the Google search, you're not quite sure what you're going to get sometimes. And there were pictures of the heads of beheaded people. And I made it, well, no. But you know what that did for me? They said, what we're talking about here isn't just some nice Christian subject that we get to have in our comfortable environment and, and walk out of here. What's the next thing? Lunch? What are we going to do? Friends, Christians are being persecuted. Non-Christians are being persecuted. We are a blessed people to be in the environment that we are. But we need to be mindful that the prophetic scriptures concerning all that's going to happen is already happening and has since the time of Christ.
And I believe it will get intense, more intense, and it will cause uh, even greater devastation in the time to come. I want to move then to verse 15. And verse 15 begins to talk about um, the Antichrist. It says this, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Jesus is mapping out what's going to happen in all these times. And then he clearly articulates that the prophecy from Old Testament, the book of Daniel, and he saves you a lot of study here, by the way, and a lot of verification. Jesus himself says that Daniel existed and that Daniel was a prophet. All right? And he gives reference that Daniel has a reference to this abomination that causes desolation, which is a person, a real person, a real event in time, and a real desecration that happens in the temple. And so he gives reference to this is going to come. Now, the question is, when would that come? The abomination that causes desolation. Remember our double fulfillment kind of thing, our, our, our past tense, our future tense? Well, you need to know this, that after Jesus Christ ascended to the heavens, sort of all hell broke loose in Israel for seven years. And that hell broke loose around um, a season of, it would have been, what, 60, uh, 66 to 73. And right in the middle, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Because there was this, this fighting aspect that was going on. All right. And so with this diagram, I want to put a little mark and we go back to that one on uh, the timeline that 70 A.D. is pretty critical. And so we need to say, OK, is this verse 15 referring to something that happened in 70 A.D. that was still after Jesus? Or is it something that's still to come close to Jesus' second coming? Well, you need to understand that when Jesus said this um, particular scripture as it's referenced there concerning the abomination, the desolation stuff, he he was speaking to Jewish men who understood what that meant. All right. What does that mean? That means someone ended up in a very sanctimonious spiritual place, the temple, and did an act that was an abomination. It's just terrible. You don't do that. All right? And the reason they knew very well was in 168 B.C. If you were to take your Bible, we call it the intertestamental period. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's like 400 years of silence. What happened? Anything going on between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah, 400 years worth of history. All right? And one of the historical things that happened was there was a guy by the name of Antichus the fourth and Antichus the fourth he nicknamed himself Epiphanes which comes uh, from the Greek uh, Theos Epiphanes which means God is present so Antichus Epiphanes he sets himself up as the ruler all right in the temple and he decides that he is going to place a statue of Zeus over the altar, and everybody is supposed to come and worship Zeus in the middle of the temple. And he sacrifices a pig. Pork is unclean to Jewish people. He sacrifices the pig, and then he makes the leaders eat the pig. 
abomination, desolation. There. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus is not referring to epiphanies because it already happened. So he's saying there's something else that is coming. It was on the hills of that whole event, actually, that we get Hanukkah. Do you know that? Because Epiphanies established this. There was a revolt that came out of uh, the Jewish people. The Maccabean revolt for three years. And they finally did away with the Roman rule and all that. And this whole desecration. And three years later, on December the 25th, they rededicated the temple. It refers to this in our own Gospel of John. That... There's a celebration of it. And that's a celebration of the rededication of the temple in the intertestamental period, Hanukkah. So don't ever feel like if you're a Christian, you can't celebrate Hanukkah. Because you're celebrating the reestablishment and the rededication of the temple following the Maccabean revolt. All right? little sidebar there I know on that one. But we have this picture, and I have this question. Uh, this is a painting that somebody did. Was the whole prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 fulfilled when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. to the Romans? You don't need to take the time to do this. I've been just spending some time doing it. There are people that are adamant and can point to every single part of Matthew 24 and 25 as already having taken place past tense with the fall of Jerusalem. That was the end for the Jewish people. There was the end of the identity of the Jewish people as it related to the priesthood. There was the destruction of the temple, which means the whole sacrifice system was done away with. That was done. It was God's judgment on the Jewish people. There, fair and clear, the tribulation, the coming, the spiritual coming of a, a new dimension and a new season of, uh, of a God-glorifying movement. And so the Jewish people today, in some people's view, are no different than anybody else. In fact, Israel is just another country like anybody else. Now, that's where a lot of tiff, uh, a lot of uh, fights start to happen with us Christians sometimes. Because some people believe that God's done with the Jewish people. And others of us, and I'm one of those, believe that God still has a plan to reveal himself to the Jewish people. And that scripture articulates some of it. Whatever camp you're in, you're fine. We're all going to figure it out when we get to the other side anyway, and we'll scratch our head and go, I'll be. How about that? All right? But I think it's very interesting in this point. The United States has historically been very pro-Israel. The reason it's pro-Israel goes back to still an understanding that the Israelites have justification to have their own country, that there is a plan of the ages still going on for them. All right? Other people say, forget it. Yeah, just like anybody else. All right? So that question is an important question to ask. And some of you here this morning may very well say, yeah, Matthew 24 is all fulfilled when the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 A.D. to the Romans. So this diagram, again, between the two, is our passage that we're looking at today, a passage that had fulfillment in 70 A.D., or is there a future tribulation period with an Antichrist coming where it's going to be fulfilled? All right? So now, finally, to the next verse as it relates to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is referenced throughout Scripture in different places. 
We don't have time to, to reference a lot of those. But if you were to look at Second Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 as well, it says this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. All right? So the man of lawlessness is another reference to this Antichrist. And this Antichrist person, I believe, that's still to come in the Great Tribulation period, is not someone uh, who is all disjointed and, and scraggly and evil. And I mean, uh, in other words, it's not a Osama bin Laden kind of person. All right? The scriptures reference that the Antichrist will deceive many. All right? He is definitely the incarnation of evil, but he's disguised as a dynamic, charismatic, visionary kind of leader. And he's going to astound the world with his solutions to human problems. And his empire will span probably every continent and his rule, all kinds of things that you can start to try to figure out. And maybe it's conjecture, maybe it's not. But the Antichrist, I believe, that's being given reference to is a coming leader that's going to appear before people and say, I got it. I got it. We're good. And people are going to look at the person with admiration. I like how Ray Pritchard, a pastor, his theory is like this. He says the Antichrist will have the good looks. He wrote this a few years ago. He will have the good looks of John Kennedy, the folksiness of Ronald Reagan, the inspirational power of Winston Churchill, the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt, the vision of Abraham Lincoln, the military proudness of Douglas MacArthur, the respectability of Gandhi, the charm of Will Rogers, and the genius of Albert Einstein. All those attributes will be wrapped up in one irresistible human personality. And to top it all off, he will be wholly and totally energized by Satan. An angel of light masquerading for the time as a benevolent leader. And as you climb into maybe some understanding of that uh, tribulation or a great tribulation is referred to before, right before Jesus comes back, there's actually this intervention um, of the Antichrist and he sets up this hope, and then he dashes the hope by turning on people. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Your name's right there. It doesn't say let the theologians and pastors have opportunity to stand on this. It says let the reader understand. We need to be wise unto the day and all that is going on with this. So it moves from there to verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for the pregnant woman and the nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Guess what? A double fulfillment here. Do you think when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. that that wasn't happening? You bet you that was happening. They were fleeing to the Judean hills. Now, what's interesting there is usually you would flee to a protected city, but the protected city was not happening. And so it was just take off, get away, and and trust that your flight uh, happens in a good period of time. That it's not in bad weather and it's not on the Sabbath. So Jesus is exhorting them to be wise and to have understanding when this comes and what starts to happen and all that's poured out at that time. And then it says this in verse 21. He goes on, for then, then, there's some sequential ordering here too 
what Jesus is saying. For then there will be great distress. And I have this listed in the New American Standard as well because the great distress can be translated for then there will be a great tribulation. All right? And so this is Jesus identifying a term that's used today in modern prophecy talk called the great tribulation. And so the great tribulation period is Jesus saying, then there will be great distress, a great time of tribulation, unequaled. I think this is key for me personally in understanding where, what camp I fall into. Okay, Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. What Jesus is saying is there's a great tribulation coming that is so horrendous. Nothing before it, nothing after it will describe what happens in that moment. All right? If that's true, and the tribulation that came upon them in 70 AD was pretty bad. It said up to a million Jews maybe were killed in that dispersion and everything that happened with the fall of Jerusalem. That was bad. And I'm just and, and bad they lost their temple, they lost the sacrifice, they lost their Levitical system. And and maybe that's right. Some people say that was as bad as it will ever get for a Jewish person is what happened right there in 70 AD. But I still think God has plans for the Jewish people because he loves them. Alright? And he is referencing that there is something that would come even worse. And we know with World War II how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust? Six million Jews. And they're just obliterated and wiped down in some places like Poland. In Poland, there were 330,000 Jews and 300,000 were killed in concentration camps. 90% just wiped out. Now, you tell me, I think that, in my opinion, is worse than maybe what happened in 70 A.D., But here's Jesus saying, and Jesus didn't come back after World War II, right? So there's even coming a a time in the future that's going to be so terrible, all right, that nothing compares to it. And so this is the coming of the Great Tribulation. Now, different theologies, different ways. Are Christians around for that? Yay, nay. I'm talking about that right now, but you just need to know this. There's coming a Great Tribulation. And in the middle of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will deceive many people. We need to be wise into the understanding of this. We need to be wise. And by God's grace, he's in control. He says, if those days hadn't been shortened, even the elect would be a mess. Verse 23, at that time, again, a sequential kind of phrasing. And you have to wrestle with the the sequential nature of what's being spoken of by Jesus. I mean, he's on the Mount of Olives, right? He's telling four guys this. He's trying to explain it to them, but he's pouring out his heart. This is my answer to your question. What will be a sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay. Yeah, the temple's going to fall. The stones aren't going to be upon one another, but the coming of the age, you don't fully understand this, but this is what's going to be happening. There's a sequential nature to it. It says this in verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time, so that if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out, and here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, the Antichrist is not here now, but the spirit of the Antichrist is. The idea that there's no absolute truth. That uh, human beings are the end all. 
you can subtly see the mindset of an Antichrist embedded in the thinking of our culture. And there are proponents that are articulating false hope even today. We need to be mindful that all of us can be deceived and that many will come proclaiming that they are the hope, that they are the one. Time doesn't afford for us to give some examples of that, but look for them in current events. Look for them in current events. And then in verse 28, it says this verse, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Nobody knows what that means of any certainty. I just don't think I want that on my Christmas card. It then finishes out this section we're looking at today in verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Difference reference that that's articulation, even of nuclear warfare or whatever could be happening. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end, one end of the heavens to the other. Friends, this is not, if you believe in a rapture, this is not a reference to a rapture. This is a reference to the full, glorified second coming of Jesus Christ. There will be great jubilation for those who are followers of Christ, but there is also a mourning. He will say, enough's enough. This is our hope. It's a personal hope. I think it's also a public hope. That we know Jesus himself spoke these words. Jesus spoke these words, friends, to his close companions and disciples. And if Jesus was standing before you this morning, he would say the same thing. Know this, that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Friends, we need to, I think, in this passage, be mindful of a few things. I think it's important for us to understand that Jerusalem, I think, will be the center of the earth in many ways for the last times, uh, during the last days. That this present age will climax in a fearful uh, tribulation led by an Antichrist. But God will allow the Antichrist to show his true nature and show the nature of the human heart. And he will intervene and he will bring salvation. So this information needs to lead to transformation. Just five bullets real quick. Be on alert. Like I said, the difference between being alarmed, being fearful, being escapist, and being alert. Be wise unto the times. All right? This spirit is at work even in our midst today. May we not hesitate to pursue truth, what is right and wrong. Don't be seduced by sin. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's happening today. Hopefully it's not happening in your life. If it is, you have a Savior who can change the trajectory of your life from destruction to hope if you let him come into your life and lead you. Don't be naive. 
This is a time for God's people, I believe, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, as it says. Don't be naive about all that's going on. Third, be bold in faith. We as followers of Christ ought to be bold about our faith and the hope that we have. There's every reason that you could take a conversation about ISIS, you know, Ebola. You name the current event and you could turn that conversation to a spiritual conversation with a friend, with a neighbor. What do you think? Ask questions. Jesus always asks questions. Be bold in your faith. Questions open people up to their presuppositions. And you never, ever know when someone goes, I've been asking those kinds of questions. I don't know if anybody gives me the answers. And maybe you don't have the answers, but you begin dialogue and point them or say, I'll come back with an answer. Be bold in your faith. Fourth, live without fear. We should not be afraid even in light of what we know to be true that is coming. It said we've read the back of the book and we know that we win. And then embrace Jesus alone. The Antichrist is called the Antichrist because he's against Christ. Be for Christ and embrace him. And you will have the hope, not only the future, but the hope in your present day. Embrace Jesus. You know, this whole thing of the Antichrist and people, uh, I, it's, sometimes I wonder, how are people so easily suckered into following some of the human leaders in our world? You ever ask yourself that question? I want you and I to not look to any human leader, political, military, otherwise. Look to Christ as the one that you embrace, as the one that is in your hope. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to sing about that Christ. And I pray that you will be able to just endure your heart to what the Lord has done for you. But I close with this passage out of Titus as an instruction for us. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. May we sing by looking to our blessed hope, the one who has come and the one who will come again. But as we look to our hope, may we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. Because God, through Christ, is redeeming for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. So may we worship him not only with our voice, but may we worship Him with acts of obedience and diligence and service this very week.